Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. We are talking about wild men still, and we've been talking about different men from Scripture, some of them that lived a good life for God and some maybe not so much, but then like a lot of us, some that had some good moments and some bad moments. But before we get into that, I just want to ask you a question. I like to start off with questions a lot of times. Well, this is more of a statement because I think it's true for everybody. Everybody has a little bit of crazy in their family, don't they? And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you think yours doesn't, that means you're the one in your family, just so you know. So, you know, if you're like, oh, no, absolutely not, then all your family's like, yeah, it's you, it's you. But we all have a little bit of crazy in our family, and it keeps it interesting. It's not a bad thing. It's not a derogatory thing. We just have those people in our family that keep all the family get-togethers interesting. Maybe, like, you know, you had some, uh, some, I say ants. I'm from eastern North Carolina. I don't mean the little tiny insects. I mean what some people would call aunt. You know, that's one word that I would, I know how it's spelled, but I'm just going to say ant because that's what God intended. It's, it's Hebrew pronunciation, ant. So anyway, but you have these ants that play games called Sling the Biscuit. Anybody ever heard of a game called Sling the Biscuit? It was this old country game that actually my aunts got out and played with me when they were probably, gosh, they were probably in their 50s, I don't know. And I was a, you know, a young kid and they got out in the yard. And what you do is you grab somebody by their hands and you start spinning around and you spin around and around and around until their feet come off the ground. And then you let them go. And they, wherever they land, they're supposed to try to stick the landing. It is hilarious. It's hilarious. Um, and so, like, if you land on an elbow and a knee, you're supposed to try to hold that pose, whatever it is. Um, well, one of the cool stories I heard about when they were, like, teenagers is one of my um, aunts, there again, aunt, for those of you who are challenged, um, <laughs> one, of, uh, one of my aunts came, and this guy came up in the neighborhood, and he was a little bit... Um, he was a little bit tipsy already, I'll just say that. He had a little bit of liquid courage in him, and so they're playing in the yard, and so she grabs him, and so he's extra loosey-goosey, you know, and so like they're going around, and she spins and spins, and she gives him a few extra turns, and then lets go, and the guy went into the ditch, like he literally like fell in the ditch, and he's like, and they thought they killed him. But anyway, but that's the kind of stuff that our family did. And we've still done it even recently. Uh, maybe you had the uh, uncle who always told the stories that you're like, I don't know. You know, like he said he was some kind of extra special, special forces. And you're like, specials, right? But anyway, but you're like special forces, some secret op that people say doesn't exist anymore. Or maybe you had the uncle who threw the can of spray deodorant into the bonfire at camp. Just so you know, that's probably a felony because it like makes like a bomb and metal shards can go shooting out. So, you know, maybe those people were in your family. Maybe you had similar stories. Maybe you had totally different ones. But regardless, you had that person who maybe they just didn't have a filter and they just kept family situations really exciting and interesting. You never knew what was going to come out of their mouths. They were the unspoken one, the bold one. They, but they keep the family get-togethers exciting. Maybe you could say they're the one who really stands out. You know, they're the one who... Maybe just says it like it is. And honestly, I get comforted because Jesus was no different. You know that? Jesus was no different. His family had one of those people. He had a cousin who a lot of times we hear uh, he's referred to as John the Baptist. I, I love the, the series Chosen. Have you guys seen The Chosen? 
If you have not watched The Chosen, I would say go home and watch it. You can watch it for free. You can watch it on a smartphone or you can cast it onto your TV. There's multiple ways you can do it, but watch The Chosen. It is one of the best examples of the life of Jesus that I've ever seen. I will tell you, just so you don't get thrown off, it's not um, what they say that's from the Bible. Everything I've seen has been true and correct. But one of the things that I love is they add in things from history and culture to help you understand why this might have happened. Does that, does that make sense? So not everything you see you'll find in the scripture, but everything you see you'll, you'll kind of see an idea from it from history and culture of that time. And so it just puts it all together in a way that just blows my mind. And a few episodes ago they had John the Baptizer is what they called him. And that's a better name. You know, he wasn't necessarily John the Baptist because back in 1609, about 500 years ago, is when the Baptist denomination started. And just so you know, John would not have made a very good Baptist because nobody wants to eat a locust casserole. Um, and a lot of my Baptist friends talk about how they make good casseroles and he would not have been popular at the local uh, Baptist church. But John the baptizer, John the immerser, he was known for immersing and baptizing people uh, to follow this coming Messiah that was on his way. He was a, a, a predecessor of his cousin. He was six months older than Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3 verse 4, we see a little bit of his you know, differences that he had. It says in, in Matthew 3, verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That was literally what he ate. He kind of led, led, led I can't even talk. He kind of lived out in the wilderness where he would go and preach, and he would be near the Jordan River a lot of times, and his food was locust and wild honey. And he looked kind of crazy, and they do a good job of portraying him as just being a different guy, not necessarily well-kept like maybe we would expect him to look, even compared to the standards of that time. And he was the guy who was there. He was six months older than his cousin Jesus. And like I said, he was the fun one in the family. You know, you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. And they do a good job of sort of uh, alluding to that in The Chosen. But his purpose was to be the forerunner of Jesus. His purpose was to draw people's attention to him so that then he could point to Jesus. And in Matthew 3, verse 3, back up just a little bit before we read just a moment ago. It says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So his whole purpose was to say, The Messiah that you've been waiting for, for a couple thousand years, is here. You've been waiting for him. He is here, and his name is Jesus. And he was out preaching, he was baptizing people for repentance to get them ready to hear the gospel that Jesus would ultimately come and live and die to proclaim. This gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me in Matthew 3. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So it seems that almost every single person that lived in the area came and heard John preach in his very unique delivery style where he just said it very clear-cut and plain like it was. He would cry out, repent, and people by the thousands would repent and they would be baptized to get ready to hear about this Jesus who was coming to be the Savior of their souls. 
And he got a lot of attention because of that because, I mean, anytime you've got whole towns and regions coming out and being dunked underwater out in a river by this crazy dude who eats bugs and dresses in camel skin, you're going to draw a crowd. And so the religious leaders come out, and many of them, honestly, as you see in the life of Jesus, weren't fans because they saw him just like they would see Jesus as a threat. A threat to their power, a threat to their place of prestige. And so they were a little bit thrown off by him. And his methods were not exactly like they would have done. And he did not respect people's so-called authority. He just told them the truth no matter where they came from. He didn't shy away because people had a certain standing and they had a certain place or position. And he just told it like it was. It says in verse 7 there in Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these were religious leaders, coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And he gives strict and harsh words to these people. He calls them broods of vipers. I don't know about you guys, but in any culture, I'm thinking that's probably a negative, right? A bunch of snakes, that's right, you know? You know, also those who serve in Washington, D.C., maybe you, know, you might call them that, I don't know. But broods of vipers, he calls them. And you might say, well, why was he so harsh? We don't see him, just like we don't see with Jesus, we don't see him saying that to the regular people. Because they came out because they felt like they were broken and they needed to be pointed in the right direction. And so he knew that, and so he welcomed them. But these people who were coming just to kind of spy on what he was doing just to see is this guy going to be a problem that we need to stand in and stop he called them out for what they were they weren't there because they weren't repenting in their hearts they just wanted to be in the know and see what this preacher was all about do you know that truth is a rare commodity in our world today too it's a rare commodity today and it was a rare commodity back then as well people just don't like the truth especially when it's difficult and we run from the truth and we'll lie to ourselves honestly we lie to ourselves more than we lie to other people sometimes you know we lie and we tell ourselves oh well this is the way it is or this is the way it isn't and here's the thing when truth is scarce we need people like john the baptist who are going to step up and tell the truth we need people like this guy who are going to stand up and tell the truth. And I like to call him, I'm not sure if I coined this phrase or not. I'm sure somebody else may have called him this before. But I like to call him truth rebels. People who would rebel against the status quo and the lies and the falsehood that's so prevalent in our world. And just tell the truth because people need to hear the truth. Who'll speak and stand the truth. So the question I want to sort of tackle this morning is this. What does it take to be a truth rebel? What does it take to be a truth rebel? I think a question that we first have to answer is this. Am I willing to stand for truth when others won't? Am I willing to stand for truth when other people won't? Because if you wait for a crowd to stand for truth, you'll probably never stand. If I wait for a crowd... I will never stand if I'm going to stand for the truth because it's a scary thing. And most people are motivated by fear. Most people are motivated by fear in almost everything, whether it be fear of physical things or fear of spiritual things or fear of financial things. People are motivated by fear. And so we won't often stand up until we see what? One other person stand up. 
I, I think about, I don't know if this was how it happened, but I think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. When everybody's told, when you hear the music, bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And we saw three guys stand up. Chances are that story might not have happened if it had just been one. You know, until it was one, then it's two, then it's three. Who knows how they stood up? They may have all stood up together. I don't know. But it's a whole lot easier to stand up when you have people that will stand with you. Am I right? And so we need to understand if we want to stand up for truth, we can't wait for somebody else to do it. So are we willing to stand for truth when others won't? But here's the, the, the groundwork you've got to lay. To stand for truth? You have to know the truth. To stand for truth, you have to know the truth. That's true for us, isn't it, people watching on Facebook? If we are going to stand for the truth, we've got to know what the truth is. Because the problem with anything, but especially in the spiritual realm, especially in, uh, in the Christian world, so to speak, is that lies are never like, they don't have a big flashing neon light pointing an arrow over them saying, this is a lie, this is a lie, do they? Because that defeats the whole purpose. People lie or beings lie to be what? Deceptive. They want to be tricky. They want to, you know, they want to fool you into thinking that this is a true thing. Because like I say a lot of times with sin, if sin was like sticking your hand into a bear trap, not many of us would do it more than once, would we? But sin has some good feelings to it. It gets us out of trouble. It has pleasure to it. And so that's why sin is a temptation. And that's why lies are effective. Because you can't always recognize them unless you dig down deep. So do you look and know the truth? Do you study the truth? Do you stand for the truth? How rooted in truth are you? Look at Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 6. Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Even in the early church, in the first century, Christians were being pulled away by what? Lies, false teaching. And so Paul says, be careful. Remember the way that you came to the truth. Stick in it, stay in it, be rooted in it, burrow down in it. You know, it's a beautiful thing when we're baptized into Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. But the sad truth is, is that many times, I think we believe that when I'm baptized, it's the end of something. And while, yes, it's the end of our old life, and it's the beginning of our new one, it is the what? What's that word I just threw in there? The beginning of our new life. It's not this thing where, okay, I've been baptized into Christ, I have the Holy Spirit, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back, I'm just going to sit here and chill and relax. No, that's not what it's all about. It's the beginning of your new life, and you're a new baby in Christ. You know, you're born again, and so you need to grow. But many times we just sort of stay in the nursery, don't we, spiritually? We don't grow and dig down deep into God's Word, and we, don't, we just want people to feed us. We want people to feed us from every day from here on out. But at some point, we need to learn to make sure that we do what? Feed ourselves. And so we have to dig down deep. And keep on growing. We're tempted to think that we've arrived, but we're just beginning when we give our life to Jesus. So the questions you ask are, am I walking in Him? 
like Paul said? Or am I being built up? And here's why, because he said, so you aren't taken captive by lies. He's writing to people that have the Holy Spirit. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. I, I'm going to say it several different ways. And he says, make sure you aren't taken captive by lies. So know a couple things. One thing is that there are lies that will still try to sneak in. And number two, you can be tricked by them if you are not grounded in the truth of God's word. So spend time in the truth of God's word every day. One of those worldly ideas that maybe Paul was referring to is a, a powerful deterrent to being a truth rebel. If you say, I want to be a truth rebel, these are one of the things that might come at you. This world and even misguided believers would have us believe that love and truth are diametrically opposed. They'll say, you either love people or you tell them the truth. You know, if you tell them the truth, then you're not going to be loving. You're going to be a jerk. You're going to be judgmental. You can describe it almost any way but people say yeah you can't be loving and kind and also tell people the truth or they'll change the definition of love or truth or maybe both and, and they'll say it like this they'll say many will say that love is simply being kind like we said it's just saying nice things only that's loving and accepting whatever someone does without telling them the truth they would say that's what love is or They'll go from the other angle and they'll say, well, truth is subjective. You can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we can all get along. But the problem is, on many subjects, yeah, I mean, there are some things that are conditional. But on many subjects, especially in Scripture, there is a such thing as absolute truth. There's an, a such thing as things are right and things are wrong. And, you know, the idea of subjective truth that works well in a one-person vacuum, but last time I looked, we don't live there, do we? When only you only have you to respond to and you only have you to live with, you'd probably drive your own self crazy too, right, if you're like me? But you don't live in a one-person vacuum, and so the idea of subjective truth doesn't hold up very long. You see, here's an example. My truth may be that it's okay for me to steal if it's something that I want or need. You know, so that's my truth. And, and according to some people, and you may say, oh, you're exaggerating, but I've heard people make these same arguments about some silly things. They say, well, that's your truth. You know, you needed it. It's okay. You can go and take it, that type of thing. But here's the thing. My truth is my truth until I'm crawling in your window at 2 o'clock in the morning. Then your truth that your stuff belongs to you, that you work for, and your family is yours to protect, those two truths are going to bump heads, aren't they? And so we have to realize that at some point on some matters, there are truths that are absolute and absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And when we live in a world where we interact with other people, we have to come to an understanding of what is a truth and what is not. And so we understand what a truth is, is that it's something that's unchanging, and so our truth conflicts with our need for justice, and that has to be satisfied. These two opposing ideas can't be both true. So here's what we understand. A truth rebel speaks the truth in love. A truth rebel speaks the truth in love. These two ideas, love and truth, are not opposite ideas. They're not opposite ideas. Are you, are you with me on this? They're not opposite ideas. You can love somebody and tell them the truth. And I believe, I would assert this, if you truly love people, you will tell them the truth. All right, 
a place where we can all wrap our minds around it really easily. If you're a parent, or you are an older brother or sister, or you're an uh, aunt or uncle, I said aunt, just so everybody feels pulled in together. Thought that would get a little snicker. All right. An aunt or uncle, or, or you just have children that you care about, you know, your, your friend's kids. If we were around these children, let's say when they're two or three years old, and you're out playing in somebody's front yard, and the little two-year-old, and they will do it every time, will want to go and run and play on the street. Because my cars roll better on the street, dummy. <laughs> it's kind of the way they look at you and talk to you. Y'all kids didn't do that? My, my kids did. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. Yeah, It's like, my car rolls good on the street. My, my little trike or whatever, you know, rolls better on the street. And they are so indignant. You know, this is my truth, Daddy. You know, I mean, that's, they don't say it that way, but that's the way they act. This is my truth. And I'm like, okay, but your truth is not going to last long when it comes to this Kia coming down the street, right? That truth of the laws of physics are going to ring true. And so we stop children because we care about them. We love them. So what do we do? We tell them the truth. You know, we, we get them out of, out of danger and then as best as they can understand, we explain to them, you can't play there because you will get hurt. Am I right? That concept is easy for us to understand, but we have to understand that that also extrapolates to when we get older. And when our friends and our loved ones are on a path that's dangerous and is going to lead to their physical harm or their spiritual harm or their emotional harm, then it's up to us if we love them to do what? Tell them the truth. But we have to do it in a loving way sometimes love is stern and like I said if you've ever been responsible for a kid even if it's babysitting you know that sometimes you have to be stern but that does not mean that it's not love let's not be fooled into thinking that first John chapter 3 verse 18 says little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth if we're going to love people, we can't just talk. We have to back it up with the way we act, and we have to do it in truth. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that any church, any body of believers can get caught up in taking these things the wrong way because we're human. We all make mistakes. And there are a lot of churches that say, well, they're all love, but they're no, well, they wouldn't say this, but they're all love, but no truth. They say, we're just going to accept people where they are and hope that love will change them, but we will not tell them the truth about what some of the things that Scripture says. But then there are other churches that are all truth and no love, and that's just as wrong too. If you know all the right answers, but you're a freaking jerk, excuse me, sorry, <laughs> but if you're a jerk, that you're going to hurt people, you're going to turn people away, you're going to push people away and they're never going to hear the truth that you're telling if you're doing in a hateful and a hurtful way i don't know there's so much damage that's done by uh the westboro group that you've seen before who go and they they go outside of military funerals and they they boycott and they say some hateful things that they have these signs and people associate that with people of faith and that's not biblical faith that's not biblical faith but let's make sure that we as believers don't have the same types of attitudes, even if it's on a smaller scale. Let's love people with the truth. Point out what the truth is, but doing it in a kind and a loving way, we care about them. To put it in a very simple way, think about it this way. Imagine you're 
here one day and there's a bridge and it's a one-way road and the bridge is out and you know it and people are speeding by to follow that idea that sometimes people say was you know I just want to love them I don't want to shake them up I don't want to make them feel judged or guilty or anything like that I don't even risk that the idea might be okay well the bridge is out they don't know it but I don't want to mess up their day I don't want them to make them feel stupid and so I'll just wave at them one after one they go over the side of the, the ravine and they plummet down to their death that's not love is it that's not love and so what we do is if we love people then we're going to do all we can to be out there I mean if we have to we're going to get in the middle of the road and say stop stop I love you I don't I don't even know you maybe but I don't want you to go over this bridge where it's out I don't want you to plummet to your death I don't want you to hurt yourself and that's what love does love does things that are drastic sometimes to show people I don't want you to keep heading down the path that you're heading down because where you're heading is danger you just don't know it yet that's love too right that's love to spare somebody from pain and heartache if you can. If you do it from a pure place, it's effective almost every single time. It might take months, it might take weeks or years, but it can be effective if you do it in love. But on the opposite side of that analogy, if you're screaming at them, you know, in a hateful way, you know, not likely to listen. If you stand by the side of the road, I have a sign that says, Hey, idiot, bridge is out, stupid. They're just going to think you're a troll, right? And they're going to like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And they want to slow down, right? And so the analogy's there. If you're just saying it, if you're communicating the truth in a hateful way, in a hurtful way, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to take what you say seriously. They'll tune you out. Many of you have probably been to some big public event. You guys remember um, last time that we had the state fair, there were people that were out doing like the sidewalk preaching. You ever seen people do that anywhere? I'm a believer. Didn't know if y'all knew that. Um, I'm a preacher. But when I see those people, I don't want to hear what they got to say. I've never seen, now there could be people who are exceptions to the rule, but the ones that I've seen when they're up there, they oftentimes have signs that aren't very nice and they're talking in a tone that isn't very nice and they've got their loudspeaker when kids are on the way to get a funnel cake and they're like, repeater, you're going to hell, kid. You know, and they're like, oh, I just want a funnel cake, you know. There's about, it's about the way that you carry yourself. I don't want to hear it, and I know people who don't go to church and people who don't know Jesus and people who don't know believers don't want to hear somebody scream at them. What they're saying might be true. It very well may be exactly true. But if you're saying it in a hateful and a hurtful way, you're not going to get people's attention. Yes, you may need to, to get people's attention, but you do it in a way that shows that you love and you care about them. So a truth rebel speaks the truth when it hurts. And that's where it gets difficult. With the Pharisees, John was tough because they were so unrepentant. He called them what? Brood of vipers. And that's a scary place to be when you have to say difficult things to people who might have authority over you or you want to keep their respect or you want them to care about you. But if we truly love, we'll tell people the truth even when it hurts, right? Think about our bridge analogy. If we care about people then we have to tell them the truth, even if that means we got to stop them, 
even if we got to put spike strips in the road, so to speak, to get their attention. I don't want you to go. I'd rather you pay for new tires. I'd rather your feelings be heard a little bit so you don't spend eternity away from God. You'll have to speak the truth, though, when it may hurt the hearer. And one of the best examples of this is Jesus. A lot of times Jesus is, is portrayed in incorrect way is that he never ruffled any feathers but a lot of his ministry was just spent ruffling feathers it says in john chapter 4 verse 16 it says jesus said to her this is the woman at the well that we talk about he said go call your husband and come here the woman answered him i have no husband and jesus said to her you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That in common society would be thought of as what? Rude. You know, people would have said, how dare you say that? How dare you call her out like that? But he cared more about her soul than he did her feelings. He wanted to wake her up and understand, and she goes on, she said, well, I can see you're a prophet. <laughs> You know, she's trying to change the subject, and he says, she says, I can see that you're a prophet. He told her a difficult truth that caused her pain, and we're going to address why in just a moment he would do that, but I think you're already there with me. You're already a, a couple steps ahead of me, but just to illustrate that a little bit more, we understand surgery hurts, doesn't it? You know, surgery hurts, but it's better than the alternative of letting the sickness or the illness stay in our body. Am I right? If we leave the sickness or the illness undealt with, that pain is going to be far worse than the surgery that we have to remove it. And so sometimes we have to say things that are going to cause pain for the ones that hear it, and we tell the truth. But another side of this is this. Sometimes you'll have to speak the truth when it causes you pain. And that's hard. Sometimes you have to stand up and speak the truth when it causes you as the speaker pain. John did. In Matthew chapter 14, it says in beginning in verse 3, it says, For Herod had seized John. He was a, a low-level king, so to speak. He bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Verse 8, He prompted, prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl which she brought to her mother. John stood up against a royal authority and said, the life that you're living is wrong and it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt, it hurts everybody involved, so you've got to stop. It's wrong, you've got to repent. Well, Herod didn't like it, he threw him in prison, but then his, his bluff was called or his offer was called and he was forced to put him to death even though he didn't want to. But John was willing to tell the truth even when it caused him pain. It would have been so much easier to never go through the hardship of prison, to never put yourself in a place where you might lose your life, but he was willing to tell the truth even when it hurt him, even when it cost his life. Are you willing? Are you willing to speak the truth even if it costs you standing, respect, comfort, money or maybe even your own life 
it seems scary, right? It seems difficult. And if I'm being honest, if I'm being real, as I look at our culture, it scares me a little bit to think that there may be times that I have to stand for truth even when it may hurt me in all those areas. But if the truth is the truth, it's worth standing for. And here's why John could not be silent in the face of danger. And he had to tell the truth. And if we learn this truth, I believe we will too. A truth rebel cares more about eternity of joy than a moment of pain. A truth rebel cares more about an eternity of joy than a moment of pain, of discomfort. He cares more about it for himself, or she cares more about it for herself and for the here than they do for a moment of pain. John knew that Herod had an immortal soul that would face judgment. And so he told him, even though it was scary, to repent. A truth rebel knows the truth will set you free. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You skip down to a few verses later in verse 36, and Jesus goes on to say, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's talking to people that were doubting him. And he says, if you are set free by the truth, the truth will set you free. And you will truly experience freedom like you've never experienced it before. Don't you want people that you care about to experience it? Then why do we continue to be quiet and allow them to drive headlong off of those bridges that are out? Why do we allow them to not hear the truth that Jesus loves them so much? John and truth rebels like him know that a moment of discomfort and possible hurt feelings is nothing compared to an eternity of separation from God in hell. And I believe what the scripture says. I believe if we love people and if we have an ounce of understanding of what hell might be like, then we will tell the people truth in love. There's a great preacher, Carrie Allen, who says, It's one thing to curse the darkness, but it's another thing to turn on the light. Hey, buddy. <laughs> it's one thing to curse the darkness, but it's a whole other thing to turn on the light. Can I be honest for a second? I've been being pretty honest all along. <laughs> But we as believers, sometimes when we get together, we like to curse the darkness, don't we? Oh man, those people are horrible. Those people do this. Those people do that. And our definition of darkness can change over time. And the things that we struggle with aren't really quite so dark anymore. They're just dim. But the people that aren't like us, the people that sins are different than us, that's the only darkness we like to talk about. But then when it comes to this, the condemning the darkness, we don't often like to go and turn the light on. Because we know that when we've been sitting in the dark for a while, and we realize deep down that we've been sitting in the dark, we know when the light flips on, it's hard to see and it hurts. But we're called to turn on the light, not simply curse the darkness, but show people the light so they can come to the light. And so last thing I want to do as we wrap up this morning is this. A truth rebel points people to Jesus. A truth rebel points people to Jesus. You can tell all the truth you want, but if you don't point people to Jesus, you've missed the point of pointing out truth. It's a horrible thing for us to get people so close 
and to tell them that they're wrong, but not tell them that there's a Savior who died for their sin and He paid for it on the cross by His blood, His broken body. They can have that joy. It's not just that you're lost, it's that you can be found. It's that you once were blind, but you can see. They can have that life forever in Jesus. The most loving thing that we can do, the most loving thing that we can do is live for Jesus and point people to Him. He can fix their sin. He can mend up their brokenness. And He can make them whole. And so I want to say all that tough stuff that I've said to, to me and to you today. But I want to lighten the burden a little bit. Because it's not that you have to get it all right. It's not that you have to do it perfect each time. Just seek your best to seek after Jesus and cling to Him. And do your best to live for Jesus. And when you screw up, admit it and turn back to Him. But when people see that, when they see what grace looks like day in and day out, when they see a believer who gets knocked down and gets in the mud and maybe even wallows in it for a little bit, but gets up and runs back to Jesus and they see the church, they see Jesus wrap his arms around them, they say, I want that. I want to be free. You point people to Jesus in ways that you and I never truly could just simply with our words. But in addition to our words, and when we bring them to Jesus, He can fix them. We can be kind, we can be loving, we can tell the truth, we can be stern, we can be firm. But Jesus is the only one who can make them whole. He's the only one who makes dead men and women live again. And so bring and point people to Jesus. This world needs truth rebels that will stand up and stand out so that people can be set free. More than ever, truth stands up in a world full of lies and darkness. And so if you and I, even though we may feel like, man, I want to see somebody else stand up before I do, you might be the one you might be the domino that tips everything and sends everything into a chain reaction. You might be the one that says, I'm going to stand for truth, even if nobody else does. And you may feel like you're alone, but you may say, okay, only God is with me. But then once you stand, you never know, you turn around, there might be a hundred more behind you. So the challenge is for us, church, to be truth rebels that will stand even when others won't but we've got a family and a body here that will stand together if one by one we make our decision to trust Jesus as Lord of all and King of Kings of our life. Today, if you have a burden on your heart and you need to let the light shine in, the truth into you, it can set you free today. We'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to obey the gospel of Jesus and to be set free and have that new life. You also may be here today and You've obeyed the gospel. You've followed Jesus. You've been washed clean. But man, you've been kind of sharing, standing back in the back and you've been shrinking back and you haven't been spending time rooted in God's word and you need to know the truth better. Maybe today that's what you've got to decide to do. Or maybe you know the truth, but you've been keeping it quiet. Today you've got to stand up and say, I will be the truth 
rebel. Whatever your decision is, don't leave here without making it. Because this world needs truth rebels that will stand up and stand out. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's Sermon Podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement MC.